Hello, welcome to NHSR podcast number nine on the 11th of February 2022. We are a podcast from NHSR. NHSR is a community of people. We use open source data science tools and health and social care in the UK. We are focused on R, but we're friendly towards other languages, uh, such as Python. I am Chris Bealey. I'm a data scientist. I work in Nottinghamshire Healthcare NHS Trust, and I'm also co-chair of the NHSR Technical Advisory Group. So today we're going to be talking to some people who've done some work with digital growth charts. It's something that came from a conversation in podcast episode seven with Marcus Bohr, mentioned at the end. So we've got those people back to talk about some of the more kind of detailed technical things about the project. So I'll just introduce everyone first and then we'll kick off. So Tim, please first. Hi, I'm Tim Cole. I'm Professor of Medical Statistics at UCL Institute of Child Health. And my contribution to this was developing a statistical method for constructing growth charts, which happened 30 years ago. And I've developed our code for implementing them. And I have acted, I guess, as a, a mentor and supporter of Simon and Marcus. Thanks very much, Marcus. Hi, I'm, I'm Marcus Bohr. I'm a GP in North Yorkshire. I'm a clinical informatician and a software developer. And I was asked to get involved with the growth charts because I think I'd, I'd done some previous public code uh, of growth charts in Python. I'd done it in Ruby. I'd done it in JavaScript. This is about 10 years ago, nearly. Um, and along that way, I'd kind of got to know Simon. Um, and so we uh, when the project kicked off and the Royal College of Paediatrics were asking me to get involved, I, I got them to get Simon involved as well. And Simon, please. Hi, I'm Simon. I'm a consultant paediatrician, so a children's doctor. I work in South London. In the medical side, I'm also an endocrinologist, so I'm totally fascinated by children's growth and have been for quite a few years. I got sort of hooked into growth charts as part of that, and um, I've been sort of developing growth chart-related software through I'm also a kind of developer um, over the last 10 years and Marcus is right we met at a hack day and um, have been sort of in touch ever since and then um, more recently the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health wanted to digitize their growth charts and Marcus and I with Tim's uh, kind of wisdom have been kind of putting it together. Great, thanks. Okay, so let's uh, let's kick off then. So could you just tell me how did this this project um, come about and what problem did it solve? It's quite a long history. I developed the LMS method in 1992, which is a way of statistically constructing growth charts. And I produced a set of charts based on a British child population that was published in 1995. And those go into the Red Book, which is a booklet that's given to new parents. And I did a summary recently. They've dished out 20 million of those since that started about 30 years ago. So there's an awful lot of interest in growth charts, both at the community level, parents, but also GPs and into hospital and endocrinologists. And I'd always been thinking that it would be nice to make these charts available electronically, but it was finding it hard. And, and the Royal College of Paediatrics got involved when they developed a new version of the charts in 2009, which in, in added the WHO, the World Health Organization charts to my British charts. And so the Royal College was involved. And then latterly, more recently, they actually had a project to get it going as a digital project. And, um, they put together a, uh, an expert group, including us three, to get it get the thing moving. And so once it was in the hands of Marcus and Simon, the whole thing took off. Um, and 
we had a wonderful project manager um, whose name I'm embarrassed, it slipped my mind, but Marcus and Simon will quickly fill me in on Magda. her, but she was amazing, Magda. Um, so I think that's uh, the issue. So yes, we wanted a way that people could do the quite involved sums that in, are involved with growth charts to find where to plot your measurement on the chart and to interpret what it means. So I think I'll hand over to Simon and, and take you into the intricacies of the project. So there's also slightly more, I think, to squeeze out there, though, Tim, because uh, I'm pretty sure the listeners probably won't know. You know, constructing a growth chart in itself is 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 quite complicated, and the whole LMS method behind it is itself an innovation within the world of growth. If you see what I mean, if you might be nice just to explain how you build a growth chart what are the what are the sort of statistical how do you approach it okay so um your starting point is um, um, measurements on a large number of children let's talk about height that's the easiest so you go out and you measure probably thousands of children's heights at different ages and you want to be able to construct a growth chart which consists um if your parents you'll know what they look like of a, a, a set of curves which show whether, um, if you like, how a short child grows with age compared to a taller child. And you have a set of, of the British charts have nine of these curves showing how typical children grow. And the question is how you actually draw those lines. And my LMS method uh, takes the data and works out at each age um, a median for the age and a coefficient of variation and uh, estimates the skewness as a Box-Cox power transformation. So this is getting quite technical if you're not statistical. And then once you've got those quantities at each age, you can smooth them across age. And that then leads to a set of smooth centiles that you can um, plug in the forms of these three curves and get smooth centiles out um, to construct your growth chart. Um, so that's a very, uh, potted description of something that's quite complicated, but uh, it's been widely used uh, throughout the world and is pretty much the way that one constructs growth charts now. Yeah, it's a great project. I must admit, before we started this conversation, I hadn't made the connection with the Red Book. So I'm a relatively recent parent, not super recent, but fairly recent. And uh, people are absolutely obsessed with those growth charts. You know, they're in the Red Books. I've had so many conversations. Everybody is absolutely, um, you know, and if your child, I think once you get to about, everyone's okay if their child's sort of like 57 or something, but once you get to about 90, you know, people start asking lots of questions about, you know, why are they 90? And, you know, it's quite a, so it's, it's, it's obviously a very sort of technical, difficult area, but it's one that really sort of touches the lives really of everybody, I would say, in this country that has a child. So it's quite, uh, it's quite exciting to hear about it, really. I have had strange conversations with people in the pub and they discover I produce those growth charts. Yes, I imagine if you said that in a pub full of new parents, you would be absolutely mobbed from all sides by people waving their own growth chart at you and asking you lots of questions about yes. it, I'm sure. Because like pubs that. are never full of new parents. I mean, the new parents are all at home with their kids. Well, they sure. could be on some sort of like, you know, they have like a coffee morning or something, possibly. <laughs> it's only once your kids are like 15, you could get to go out to the pub again. Um, what I really like about the your growth charts um, as a paper artifact is that they are actually a calculator. You know, the way that they're used in clinical practices um, 
is to get the you want to work out what the centile is so what what percentage of children are smaller than your child in height that's the centile that you're going to read off um, and you read that from this paper chart and the reason that the lines have to be curved is because it is a calculator so actually what you're using that card for in, in pediatric clinic or the, the same charts that we print in the red book they are actually a paper calculator and so by digitizing it we've had some interesting sort of conversations about the 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 role of the curvy lines that you see and the, the characteristic curves of those um because we've kind of replaced that with an actual calculator that's in a computer so it's kind of hugely interesting to see what what will come from this as well in the future now that the the shape of the cur the curves is not so critical because we've we've taken that curve and we've put it inside the program so now it's all about presentation yeah so what i'm interested like so as i say lots of parents get obsessed with this but what in terms of the sort of clinical practice how what, what how what what kind of uses do they find in that sort of setting because obviously people listening won't be won't be as familiar with that that should probably be me there then. So um, I think the first takeaway message about those curves is that they're, they're not straight, are they? Do you know what I mean? They're not straight lines. They're quite complicated. And that reflects the fact that growth in children is complicated. You grow at different speeds at different times in your life. So if you're talking about height or length, for example, you know, you, you pretty much double your length in the first couple of years of life or something, you know, you, you get, you get very, very, you, you grow very, very, very quickly uh, from, you know, in those first early years and then it slows down and then you get a kind of speed up again for adolescence and then you slow down again towards final height. So it's kind of lots of stop and start with growth. So, um, for an endocrinologist, let's say, we often get asked to see kids who are either too short or too tall, or there's some worry in some way about their growth. Um, and this is an actually enormously kind of emotive area, you know, increasingly these days, I'm too tall, I'm too short, that kind of thing. So this is where the sort of the science of growth meets pathology, where physiology meets pathology. It's that little gray zone in the middle there where endocrinologists have to make a decision, you know, is this actually a problem? Is there some medical problem at play here that's causing somebody not to grow properly? Or actually, is this the way they're meant to be? You know, are you meant to be this particular height or this particular weight, or if that makes sense? So growth is one of the most sensitive measures of health in children. You know, like if you've got, let's say, poorly controlled asthma, then actually how well controlled your asthma, you'll probably see it most on the growth chart because all of the calories that a young person will eat, you know, they'll divert a certain number of those into, into controlling their chronic condition if it's not well managed. And when you're treating that condition really well, then you'll find actually the growth is much better and you see, therefore, you know, kids jumping centiles and so on. So growth is a really, really important sort of additional measure for pediatricians and general practitioners in clinic to kind of decide, well, you know, is there a medical problem here? And also what if I've made a diagnosis and I'm starting a treatment, is my treatment adequately working? Because you can see the effect of it on the growth chart. So growth is actually enormously important for us in clinical practice as a sort of measure of how well you're doing. 
And of course, as you say, it's really important for families as well, because we we produce these books. So now they plot their kids and then they look at them and they compare because it invites comparison, doesn't it? The whole concept of a centile, after all, is really all about comparison. It's about saying you're in the top 50 percent or the bottom 25 percent or whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. So we yeah. So that's a nice pivot, actually. So let's start talking about the. So what is the digital growth chart? So we've got gone from paper. And now we're, we're going to the uh, to, a, to a digital version. So just tell me, talk me through like uh, how that was done and, you know, what what sort of technologies were involved and, and what the benefits of it were. Totally. So, I mean, the, breaking it down, essentially, the LMS method is basically a lookup table is the way to see it. So so the LMS table, what we have there for a reference charts that are based on reference children. So British UK kids born in the 1990s and we have broken down standard art you know sort of describe their growth in terms of three numbers which tim talked about the l the m and the s and there'll be one number for each age so what you can do you can take the life course of a young person from you know birth through to 20 years of age and every few weeks you get an l m and an s for that so basically when you're the maths behind how you how you turn it into into something digital is you have to have your reference data in your in your software and then you have an algorithm that calculates the age of the child and then uses the sex and the age to look up as it were what the nearest lms values are might have to do some clever interpolation if you fall between values in your reference data and then you plug those into an equation which will then tell you a probability will give you you know a centile, as it were, what's the chances that this child belongs where they, you know, in, in relation to the population, if that makes sense. So that's sort of fundamentally how the maths works. It's about age calculation, followed by looking up some values and taking those values, putting them into an equation, and that reports back the answer that you're after. So we, um, we chose Python to do this partly because Python is great at stats, got some brilliant libraries, but also because Python is, you know, nice, mature language, object orientated. It, it's well suited to kind of APIs and things like that. So we wanted to sort of divide the business logic into the back and we wanted to have a kind of API management system that would allow us to accept potentially millions of requests from across the country. And we wanted that to happen uh, between clinical management software so that's like every hospital or every gp surgery will usually have a computer system where children's data and growth data are stored for example you take your child to the health visitor the health visitor might weigh them and that that weight would then get entered into the computer and we wanted the computer at the gp side then to interface with our api and then the api would do the maths and send back the result that could then be persisted in the GP system. So this whole thing would be kind of, you know, the doctor doesn't need to know about it, the health visitor doesn't need to know about it, it happens automatically. And of course, because we've done the maths, we've validated the maths, we've made quite sure that the results are accurate and so on. And we run unit tests, in fact, every time we push new code. So we can be quite confident, you know, that we have a high level of accuracy to a high level of precision. Um, so that's sort of roughly how it worked. We, we chose Python and we, we broke it into two bits. So we have a Python package, which has got, you know, a whole load of functions locked inside it that do the maths. 
And then we have a separate um, API, which again is also Python. And uh, that receives all the requests. And in fact, in front of that sits an API management layer, which Marcus will talk about really much better than I will, which is all about, you know, routing the right requests to the right place. Um, and I should probably stress, this is quite a new idea, the idea of clinical software, you know, most of it's sequestered in private companies. I don't, you know, anytime you in a hospital, you're buying an off the shelf package of, of clinical management software, whatever it might be for you to run your hospital on. Nearly everything is sequestered inside that. You know, if you want some sort of clinical score or something, your EPR, your electric, electronic patient record, the, the company that build that EPR would have to do the maths to do the, to produce the results for your calculator that you want. This is kind of the first time that this is all open source, really. So we as an external body, the Royal College of Pediatrics, you know, very much we're not in it for software historically. We're a charity that's run to look after and advocate for children and for doctors that look after children. And we basically, you know, we're a we're not a software house. And what's been really exciting is that RCPCH is sort of broken into software because we've kind of, I think, we kind of got a bit frustrated really that we have to rely on these big companies to build this software for us imperfectly where, where there's no, there's no, there's no um, it's kind of opaque. You, you know, you can't, you can't look at the maths that they come up with for their own growth charts and make sure whether it's accurate or not, if you see what I mean. That, that's exactly it, because this is the first time I'm aware of that a Royal College has put out its own clinical code and certainly clinical code on GitHub as an open source thing. And, and particularly speaking to what Simon was saying is that the GP systems, for example, have had 20 odd years to implement digital growth charts and they have not. And part of it is that the, the commercial incentives to do some of this stuff just don't exist. When you build a system, if you've already got all your customers, um, what's the incentive to add a feature that only really benefits um, a small number of pediatricians or a, or a small number of other users, like you know, uh, some GPs or your midwives or whoever? And actually, commercial incentives start to break down when they are not well aligned with the with with what clinicians need. And so, this feature just hasn't ever been implemented. So we had to sort of think not only should, we, how do we build this thing, but how do we get electronic patient record systems to integrate it into their systems? And so that's what led us to build it as an API. Because if we had built a, a new system where perhaps it would manage all the patient data, um, but it would be a, a separate system that you'd have to have a separate login to, every clinician would have to uh, have their own you know, the system they're using in the hospital and then log into the Royal College's system to, to do uh, data um, to do with growth, that would have failed flat on its face because people don't want a, a new system that they have to log into. They want to use the system that they're already using. And so we had to build it as an API, which means that then the, the EPR, uh, electronic patient record manufacturers can integrate with our system. So it becomes like a black box that they can use. It's a bit like, you know, many APIs are out there. If you if you've done any development in in any language and you sort of played around with APIs, you can get an API that does payments. You can get APIs to do uh, messaging like SMS texts. You can get an API for Google Maps, and you can get APIs to do all kinds of complex things. 
And so what we wanted to do was provide that thing as a, you know, an API, a service that you can buy and you can embed it into your existing system so that your, your GP and your midwife and your pediatrician will carry on using the system that's already in their care establishment, but they'll be able to get growth chart data from inside that system. And that's the way that we've had to do it, make sure that we were embedded inside the system that they're already using. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of close to my heart, and I'm sure the heart of a lot of data scientists, because I have a similar thing with patient experience data. So I'm trying to give people analytic product products for uh, text-based patient experience data, but I don't want to sell them a whole... You know, there are these huge systems that do SMS feedback and that, you know, that store all the data. And I don't at all want to get into that because, uh, A, as Marcus says, because they just won't switch. And B, because I just don't want to do that. That's not something that I'm interested in. So far better for the likes of us to produce small, useful things that can be just plugged in. That seems to be the future. So my question would be then, how has that gone? Like, have you successfully interfaced? You know, are all these systems, the EHRs, are they actually connected to the API or have you had lots of difficulties trying to kind of get connections out and get them integrated? Oh, yeah. I mean, we've, we've got customers. We've got some serious big line names that are, I won't name them just in case that they're, they're sensitive about it, but there are some big systems um, that will that are integrating the system and, and are ready to go live pretty much. So um, that will mean that you know, neonates systems will, will be able to do growth charts and GP systems will be able to do growth charts and secondary care systems as well. And have you had have you had naysayers? I mean, obviously, again, I'm sure you're not going to name any names. I'm just curious whether the vendors are all interested to sign up to this to, to benefit their customers or whether they just, you know, whether they can't be bothered. We've had one or two no's, but in the main, not really, because if you were to think how expensive and difficult it would have been to get somebody like Tim and somebody that understood growth like me and somebody that understood informatics like Marcus, if you see what I mean, to get people with that very niche experience and expertise and enthusiasm and you bring them together to build a project, you know, that it's sort of quite difficult to find these people to, to build something like that. And particularly, as Marcus says, your user group is relatively small. If you see what I mean, within a hospital trust or within a GP surgery, not many people actually really want to implement it it's hard for a vendor to do that much so we've kind of got a lot of interest and engagement because we as a charity have come along and just done it and so then the the rest of the country can kind of breathe a sigh of relief and go brilliant we can have it it's validated it's you know badged it's it's got kite marked or whatever you know it's we're, it's much easier to just pay for it and use it and be happy that it works rather than have to implement it yourself and it's really difficult to validate the numbers you get because actually though you know the gold standards themselves are quite difficult to find i guess we should probably point to the gold standard because it is that's the r bit of this whole thing isn't it is that <laughs> we built this um a python package which you can get so rcpch-growth is a, a python package which which allows you to on the command line or in your python repl or in your own python programs you can do all this stuff uh, you can get growth charts and you can get measurements back but we in order to test it we need to we, we had to get tim to give us a kind of test harness so tim created using r which is tim's preferred program language he created us for and for something thousand um fake children for whom we know 
their input measurements and we know what their centile should be. And so he did all that work in R and gave us that as a kind of test harness. And then we run that, our code against that and make sure we get the same answers. That's interesting. I haven't seen that. I've been on, is that in the, the repo? Test data is in, is in the RCPCH Python repository, um, but it will be as a great big tabular blob of data. We haven't got the R code in there, um, although we probably should, we should probably find some, we should put the R code up somewhere, shouldn't we? So that it can be looked at. Tim's already got it in his repository. It's worth talking a little bit about this calibration process because it was far from straightforward. What, what I viewed as the gold standard was um, an Excel spreadsheet that I put together around about 2000, plus um, a VBA program that ran in Excel called LMS Growth that was written by my, um, prog my programmer, Huichi Pan. And uh, so we could use this to get out the centiles and do all the calculations that the API now does. The complication was that uh, Weechi retired in 2011 and she died in 2017. And this meant that we were rather short of expertise about the, the, the uh, innards of the uh, LMS growth uh, package. And so I could use that to generate centiles from measurements, but in fine detail, other than by reverse engineering the code, or I guess looking at the code, we couldn't, um, couldn't be absolutely sure how it's working. So I um, reinvented this in R and tried to get the same answers. And we were looking for six digits of accuracy and we could not get it. And, uh, and then Simon was implementing it in Python. And part of the complication is that it involves a spline curve package and there's different versions of spline curves that give different answers and we were going all around the houses trying to get our answers to match up and it took a long long time but at the end of it I think Simon we claim we've got three or four digits of accuracy against what we call the gold standard but these three really... I think <laughs> I would love to say four mostly three mostly three um, which is I think perfectly adequate for what we want but it that was a frustration that we couldn't um, get to a clear, cleaner answer than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, you, you're saying all the things that you know our listeners will often have been uh, telling other people to do about having a, it's certainly a, a decent quality test set by the sounds of it, and having you know clean, well documented code. I think having code in two languages, we often, we quite often have SQL and R running in some of our processes, and it can be really, really useful because they do have slight kind of weird, you know ways of doing things that you don't quite expect. So it's always nice, I think, to replicate things in, in another language in that way. Um, so yeah, so we've, we've sort of touched on this, but maybe we should just talk about it as well, just uh, explicitly. So obviously this is, a, this is a, a charity developing something in the open and giving it away. So how important has that been, do you think, to the, to the success of the project? Yeah, the open source, I think, is sometimes seen as one of those ideological things where it's a nice to have um, over and above just doing the work. But actually, I think in this case, it's just really vital that, it, that this stuff is open source because um, firstly, it's about making sure it's verifiable. So we wanna make sure that other people who are specialists in growth can have a look at the code and make sure we are definitely right. Um, and that will give them confidence to use our system, whether they are just a simple consumer of it or whether they might be an international group that want to start using this uh, as the basis of a system in their own country using their own references. 
So it's really important that we do that in open source. And um, you know, let's face it, all of the previous 2000 years of medicine is open source. One of the fundamental tenets of medicine is that we have, uh, we publish stuff and we share our knowledge. And in fact, it's mentioned in the Hippocratic Oath and the Declaration of Geneva, which is the kind of thing that modern doctors uh, recite when they qualify. And it's, there is actually stuff in there about your duty to pass on the knowledge of medicine. Now, when we've got proprietary software, which implements key functions of medicine, you can't pass it on. Uh, it becomes a property of a corporation. And that it, it is inappropriate for chunks of medical knowledge to become permanently the property of a corporation. And it's not even like, I mean, we've, we've had this bite a uh, hundred years ago plus with the pharmaceutical industry. And actually the resolution for them was that they are allowed to use essentially sort of the patents mechanism, which gives them an, a, a period of exclusivity uh, where they own that molecule, they exclusively can sell it. Um, but after a period, it's usually depending on the area, it's between five and 15 years, they, that exclusivity period expires and the drug becomes generic and now everybody can use it and that helps to drive down the costs and it means that the uh, drugs can be more widely used we don't have that in software because software doesn't fall under patent law it falls under copyright law and that is a completely different kettle of fish copyright law expires 75 years after the death of the last author um, or something like that and it varies depending on the jurisdiction as well so yeah, if, the, if copyright expires 75 years after the death of the last author, especially if the author is a corporation where they don't actually die, you know, these things are Im immortal essentially in law, then uh, you're never gonna get uh, control of the, of the intellectual property back again. So when software um, that's crucial to medicine becomes copyrighted and closed source and proprietary, that's it, you've lost the game. As a, as a profession, we have given up a bit of our knowledge base and we've said it's okay for that to be commercial forever. So the only um, vaccine for that situation is to be absolutely unrepentantly, rapidly open source about everything and put everything on GitHub and share it um, because otherwise we are gonna lose our profession. So I mean, this is something I feel really strong about. I, I, have, I talk about it quite a lot. Um, but yeah, we, so we took the decision that this had to be open source for a number of different reasons. But, um, you know, it's, it's been a very easy process, actually. You know, open sourcing something is just a simple matter of making it public. And um, it doesn't restrict our commercial options either, because as a, a college, we are, this is a commercial API, which we sell as a service into other EPR vendors. And um, they, they are happy to buy it from us. Why will they pay for something that's freely available on GitHub? The reason is we warrant the environment that we're distributing to you. So when you call our API, you know that you're calling our secure, uh, uh, essentially deployment pipeline, you know, from the code all the way to actually what the clinician sees, we've got security and warranty we've got testing we've got all the things we talked about with the the r test harness and all that kind of stuff comes between you and, and us yeah indeed i mean that's that's something else that's that's really uh interesting about this project as well is that uh, in terms of the, the the way that you've been able to kind of pay for it 
Um, I saw a great quote about open source once. I think it went, I can't remember who said it now, unfortunately. Um, it said, some things are open source like, like a piano in the street. And what they were saying was, there's a piano down in the street. It's just there. No one owns it. If you want to, you can take the piano in, get it up your stairs, clean it, get it tuned. You know, if you want to, you can do all this stuff to make the piano work. But in reality, most people just can't be bothered. And it's similar to that. If, obviously, if they wanted to, they can go on the GitHub, read all the code, verify themselves, set up the API. You know, they can do all that stuff if they want to. But actually, from a busy EPR vendor's point of view, it's much easier just to write a check at the end of the year and forget about it. And that, you know, that 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 that's a really I mean, obviously there are loads and loads and loads of success stories about people who've done the right thing like you have without having to, you know, sort of sell the sell the uh, the, the the proverbial silverware to pay for it. That's it. And it's about trust as well, because, I mean, would you trust a drug that had not had any published um, papers around its efficacy or safety? No, you wouldn't. You know, drugs, even in the pharmaceutical industry, which does have its own problems around transparency, they are they have to prove that a drug has some efficacy. They have to do some trials. They have to put some of their working on the outside. So that's the same with software. I mean, one of the big problems with the software industry at the moment is that there's enormous buzz around things like machine learning, artificial intelligence, and all kinds of other bits of medicine that um, there's interest, incredible interest in turning these things into private intellectual property artifacts that can be bought and sold commercially. Without them being open source, there is no reason why any clinician would trust these things. Um, and that stuff is not being discussed at the moment because I think at the moment there's just too much excitement around the prospect of becoming fantastically rich with um, some overhyped AI solution instead of actually trying to work out how to how do we fit you know, digital solutions into medicine rather than trying to take over medicine. And I think that's the that's where we as a college can do that much better because we understand medicine, we understand how you make something acceptable to clinicians and to decision makers inside medicine. Whereas your startup kind of um, overexcited, overhyped world, they don't understand medicine enough to be able to coexist with it. They just think that they are going to invent something so revolutionary that they'll essentially replace doctors, which is, you know, maybe that will happen in a thousand years time, but it won't happen in my lifetime. There are two other good reasons for using open source as well, which is not just about transparency, it's also about collaboration. You know, something like growth charts is pretty niche. We have experts like Tim in the UK, but there's only a handful. And, and you know, there are other experts in other parts of the world who are sort of really interested in what we're doing. And, you know, one of the repos you'll see there, albeit it's a bit empty, but one of the kind of ideas we had was we wanted to start collecting references from across the world, you know, so that we could become a central repository for all the kids with, you know, growth data, you know, was there, did we get growth data on people with Down syndrome or can we have growth data on people with some other rare type of syndrome or problem or people born in a different part of the world, if you see what I mean. So it allows a focal point for academics and experts from around the world with a sort of general interest in this topic to get involved. And plus also the lovely thing about GitHub is all of the, the, the collaboration management tools that they provide. You know, we've used the issues thing in GitHub as a sort of focal point for engaging with people so that 
people don't like a thing they post an issue people want a new feature they post an issue people find a bug they post an issue and we run regular sprints in a very kind of agile way so we meet every fortnight and we work on particular tickets that we've got and then we you know we set our goals over the next fortnight and so on and what's been really lovely about this whole process is that you know it comes back to what we said at the beginning remember this was a paper calculator that was designed you know 30 years ago for the world that was in 30 years ago and now we live in a world of apis and of software and actually data visualization and so on is there surely not some way that we can actually make the whole idea of analyzing growth better you know do we can't we now use the tools that we now have to actually get rid of growth charts altogether maybe or visualize growth in a completely different way and and the only way we can really do that is is first of all while building building what we used to have on paper and putting it in on digital but then we can start thinking well can we can we use can we do it differently and then we can share it immediately with our user group who can then go, yeah, you know what, you should try this, or we don't like that, or we do like this, or, oh, actually, we've got a you know requirement for this. For example, um, mid-parental height. Kind of geeky, techy thing. If you're wanting to know how tall you should be, as a, you know, how tall your child should be, one of the, probably the most sensitive measures of how tall a child is going to grow up to be is, is a sort of some maths around, around the parental heights. And, in the old days, what we used to do is we would we would work out the mid-parental height and we would put it in a sort of hatched area in pen at the end of the chart where the child was expected to come out. And now we can actually calculate that whole thing as a centile and we can drop it down on the chart all the way down. There's no way you could have done that in paper. If you see what I mean, you would have had to get your pen out and draw and it would have been inaccurate. So we can do we can visualize things in a way that we were never able to and we can have we can conceive of ideas about visualizing things in a way that we couldn't really think of even we couldn't even conceptualize 30 years ago um there's also things like thrive lines tim has published about this is like sort of a way of describing is somebody putting on weight too quickly or too slowly you know which are actually clinically really important questions if you got a baby you know who's three months old who's put on five kilos in the last year you know is that too much and 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 that's actually quite complicated maths because people grow put on weight at different speeds at different ages so you have to have some sense of what normal is and then you have to break that into probabilities and then you have to decide you know how do you visualize that so there are all sorts of really interesting ways we could start think about doing that um and that wasn't really possible in the past and it is possible now and we have access to a huge user group in theory at any rate that could you know you we could riff off in the you know in the virtual space about so for me that's one of the one of the main benefits about using using open source is it is a sort of an instant dialogue and an academic it makes something academic it, it, it's rather nice you you it, it, it is rather like journals which and i hate journals because journals actually they're still proprietary you know so um that's another episode this, yeah <laughs> this is still genuinely open source you know you're 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 publishing your data directly into the in, into the public space and people can take it or leave it and comment on it and that's sort of rather democratic 
Well, that's a great jumping off point, actually, for my final question. So what are the sort of, yeah, I mean, you've talked a little bit about the what, what's possible. What are the sort of future plans? Where are you going next with it? So I think, well, one big thing is the Thrive Lines, which I sort of talked about. Um, and we're kind of working on that, Tim and me, at the moment, uh, which is this idea of are you putting on weight too quickly or too slowly and, and expressing that in terms of centiles which we could over we could potentially overlay on top of the growth chart so we'd have an extra layer of lines over which you shouldn't cross and how we would visualize that so i think that's a kind of exciting idea because it's been gestating in in tim's huge brain for quite a long time and and i really would like to make that manifest make it real um the other thing a little tiny things really um there, you know, I've, we've got like a cut and paste button I've implemented just this week so that you can sort of copy the chart directly from the browser and plug it into an email or whatever. So I think it makes charts suddenly more exchangeable, more usable, more shareable, that kind of thing. There's also this idea of do we need centile charts at all, you know, given that you can automatically calculate the the centile and the standard deviation score of a given measurement immediately you don't really need to visualize it in any way on the chart so much anymore the chart was only there for the clinician in the past to eyeball you'd plot the measurements as they fell and then you would look at them in the across the distribution of the centiles and you'd make a clinical judgment but now we can be a bit more accurate about that so maybe actually centile charts are kind of need to go in the bin and we need to have standard deviation score charts instead where you can plot height and weight and, and head circumference, BMI, all on the same chart so that you can see them all relative to each other rather than having to flip between them. So these are all ideas which obviously need to be implemented first, which in fact I've implemented SDS charts already, but they need then after that to be validated so that we share share it in the academic space with for people to play with them and argue about them and and sort of come up with a general consensus and then we would probably roll them out as some kind of a feature so that you can have your old charts or you can have the new ones and slowly over time we can push the science of growth in a particular direction so it's strangely although there's something archaic in a way, the science of growth and old fashioned, there's actually something that's given us a new lease in life, this idea of making it electronic, because it allows us to, to, to develop the science itself in a kind of in a better way, I think. It is quite fascinating, isn't it? So yeah, I mean, the data viz at the moment is, it is 2022. And it is based on a paper workflow, isn't it? So you, we're still using methods that were dictated to by paper now and I, I suppose yeah the next frontier is i mean i'm sure if you've got any any i'll put links as usual in the, in the notes if you've got any like data viz or i'm sure a lots of people listening will be interested they won't necessarily know about children's growth but they might be interested in you know just that in data viz and how to explain things and show things and i think probably people listening would could probably get on board of that so if you've got anything either coming up or at the moment about that kind of thing about how, where do we go from here how do we get away from the paperwork work, workflow then i'm sure people would be interested to, to, to have a look a good one for if people have just got a general interest is to actually go to our demo site which is growth.rcpch.ac.uk and that's got um, the, the digital growth charts working um, using a React 
based demo which we've built. So all that stuff is open source and all our implementers are actually using the React component that we've built to do the, 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 the visualization. But you're right. I mean, the, the curved uh, growth charts, whilst they are beautiful and whilst they are very distinctive um, and they're loved by clinicians and recognized internationally, they are still based on this paper calculator. So now that we've made the calculator part of the, the API, we are freed up to actually think about other ways of visualizing that. And so actually it'd be very interesting to see what the NHSR community could suggest if they look at what we've got and say, okay, well, moving away from that and saying, well, we can put the standard deviations for all the measurements on the same chart. How would we best detect deviations from the norm? Or what's, what tools would we need to make it more obvious when there is a pathological deviation as opposed to just a kind of natural deviation? a bit like what Simon was talking about before, you know, what, when is uh, a child kind of naturally sh short of stature and when are they pathologically short of stature because there's something wrong with them. So those are the tools that I think we really need to develop in the next couple of decades. Um, the other thing that I think comes out of this is that we, by showing this end-to-end -end proof of concept of taking a paper old-fashioned technology that's highly required by medicine, but yet hasn't been implemented in APRs. And we've built it as an API and we've made it so that it can be drawn into the existing electronic patient records. We've demonstrated the end-to-end -end process of how you do this. And now the, the, it, that opens up the possibility that other colleges um, might do this with other things that they need. So every, every college um, has its own specialist forms of medicine. Um, and needs decision support, needs tools that are there to help clinicians make better decisions. And yet a lot of those tools are not present in the electronic health records that we're using every day. But what we've demonstrated here with the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health is that a college, which doesn't normally get involved in making software, but is an expert in knowing about the thing, can actually go in there, build the software, and weaponize it, as it were. I hate that term, because especially in, in, in context of medicine, it's wrong. But, um, you know, we've turned it into something that can be absolutely dropped into a, an end user system. So why not, why not do that for um, scores that we use for cardiovascular medicine? Why don't we use that for scores that we use for um, genomics? Why don't we use that for things that we're doing in gastroenterology? Um, there is, the world is out there for us to start essentially turning this into what I call Royal Colleges 3.0. You know, it's the idea that Royal Colleges can, can move beyond just doing paper documents and, and web-based uh, PDF downloads about their best practice and actually turn it into best practice as code, which is what this is. I mean, this project is best practice as code. It's the first proof of concept of that. It's a pioneer project. But what if everybody else did it as well? That's exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of Unix philosophy, this really, of, of doing one thing well, rather than having these whacking great databases re-implementing the same thing over and over again. Why not have a, a group of experts all, all around the system, all, all, you know, got, you know, professors of medical statistics, you know, all experts validating something, saying this is correct, use this, everyone just plug into it, you know, and off you go. And rather than, um, there's that old saying, isn't it, all software expands until it can include email. 
And it's just like the opposite of that, isn't it? It's just, it's about getting the correct answer into your software and then not wor and not having to worry about it. And as, as we've said throughout this, this is a highly technical, difficult thing to do, isn't it? This is not to be done lightly by some jobbing Java programmer who, you know, on a, on a three year secondment, you know, this is, this is proper stuff. So having it badged properly uh, by universities and by the Royal College and so on and so on, I think is, is a powerful, is a powerful argument really for the whole project. It's also a slight, there's a, a slight tension in that, that we're doctors, both Marcus and me, and Tim is very much a sort of a medical expert and a medical academic. So, you know, we're not, we're, we're clinicians first and software developers second, if that makes sense. And I think that that approach, at least in the world of medical software, is really important. It's sort of my impression because I wrangle with clinical systems every day of my life, requesting tests and waiting for results and so on and getting all these various things to talk to each other. It's if you were to talk to a doctor in the NHS, you could be pretty sure that if you ask about software, everybody will generally be cross about talking about it and will tell you how many hours of the day they waste logging into this or that system. And that part of that feels as though because doctors are not involved enough in the design and development and build of these things. And, and rather than getting sucked into that, I rather like the idea that we've somewhat gone maverick, that we've gone and we're building the tools that we want for ourselves. And then we're demanding that the software house, the, you know, the software uh, like the, the EPRs and so on have to interface with us. And so we're starting with growth charts, but as, as you say, it, you, you could then go from there because you're taking the experts who have to do a thing, whether you're a gastroenterologist or a cardiologist or whatever you want, you know, like COVID, it, here's a condition that's come out of nowhere. Suddenly one day, everybody started getting ill with this, this infection and clinicians on the ground had to work out, you know, how do I decide who's going to get ill from this and who's not, how, you know, and they're coming up with clinical scores in real time. Well, we want to be able to implement those clinical scores that the people on the ground are seeing and developing. So the best way to do that is through an API. If they have to go back to EMIS or something and say, I'd like you to implement this score for me, please, so that I can use it. You've got, you add automatically another year on the back. And by then yeah. the pandemic, you're midway through, you know, the score is useless. So Not you only need- that, but Even with all the resources of the NHS, we can't afford it. We can't afford it. And I know that sounds crazy when you've got a hundred billion pounds at your disposal plus, but if you want to get every single calculation that's possible that would help clinicians to be implemented in every single EPR that's possible. So there might be 300 EPRs in the UK with, you know, guess. And there, there are at least 700 clinical calculations that I think are worth implementing. We can't afford to pay for that much clinical, technical implementation across all 300 systems. So we have to find more efficient ways of doing it. And the way to do it is look at what the rest of the tech world is doing. They build APIs and people pay for those APIs. End of story. Yeah, I'd call it weaponizing. I'm sorry, Marcus, I know you I know you backed away from that word, but it's weaponizing. <laughs> We're weaponizing APIs. Okay, well, thanks for that. That's very interesting. So let's just wrap up. This is just an optional question at the end. Just if any of you have got any suggestions, we're always looking for podcast uh, suggestions. So anything that our users, uh, which is basically, as far as I'm aware, NHSR, uh, well, um, R and Python data scientists in the, in the um, UK health and social care, uh, people, projects, subjects that they might find interesting. 
I don't know. I mean, Tim is the guy I would have thought most. Tim is the R guru. He writes the most remarkably concise code and in about two or three lines somehow manages to produce the most amazing numbers. I don't know. Is there some is there something in there for your um for the project that you're running on on growth curves, Tim? Um I've always thought that having 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 clever people like you who can actually make things work. I mean, I, my code isn't for public consumption. It's very concise and it takes ages to write. Um, but Let me guess, is it, is it base R? No, no, no. I've I moved to Tidyverse. Oh, okay. Incredibly concise, tidy, tidy. Interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah, well, I, it's, it's getting Tidyverse to do exactly what I want. It uh, can take time. And the error messages are completely incomprehensible. <laughs> That's a really big problem with Tidyverse. Well, apparently Dplyr has got a, an update out just the other week that improves the, the error messages. And I haven't seen the new improved error messages, but that, I, I saw that just the other day, so that might help you. I haven't picked that up. I'll give that a whirl. But yes, it's, t t tearing hair out is a common feature when I'm in Dplyr. Um, but no, I'm a one-stick one pony, really, and um, growth's my thing, and I'm extremely pleased to be working with these two. And also, I should say again, Magda Umersko of the Royal College, who pulled us all together and was frankly a genius in assembling this team, because, um, I mean, she's not an expert, but she got us going. And I had been sort of trying with Charlotte Wright, another colleague, to get the college interested in growth charts and getting digital growth charts moving. And we'd done a bit of stuff, but we weren't making any headway. And then Magda put us together and wow. Yes, we've discussed this many times actually on the podcast and elsewhere, is that sometimes you just need a bit of, whether it's enthusiasm or energy or argument or stubbornness or something like that, just to get things over the line. That sounds like that's what's happened there. Um, okay, cool. Well, we'll leave it there then. So um, thanks again. Oh, sorry, Simon, come on. No, I just, I was thinking if you're, I mean, I. <clears throat> the I know Marcus hates AI, so I have to be slightly careful <laughs> what I say. But um, we all hate AI; it's fine. <laughs> but you know, there is some remarkable stuff going on in Google Health at the moment with um, uh, sort of you know image analysis and so on. Some really interesting stuff, looking at retinal scans and breast mammography. And that sort of interface between artificial intelligence and clinical medicine, which I think obviously is still controversial and still very much an area that people are exploring. And there's obviously still a lot of skepticism. Um, I just think, you know, you're looking for subjects. I think that's a really interesting topic. I know one of the people who works at Google AI, who is himself a was is a pediatric trainee but is i doesn't do that much clinical medicine now and he 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 advises the team on on how you use ai to look at i think it's mammograms um from some huge data set they've got from the states and that would might be an interesting topic for you to explore you know the whole of ai and medicine in general because that does very much at least it interfaces probably more with python than it does with r yeah, the whole area of image recognition, I believe that's quite a promising. It's mm. not really my area, to be honest, but yeah, uh, I'm more, I, I do a bit of text, but not, not so much on the, but yeah, that might be an interesting one, actually. Yeah, okay, thanks. I've got a couple of links I'll drop in um, in the in it by reply of email with a few sort of further links that are interesting. The growth chart demo and stuff like that. I'll link all that stuff together and some, we did a blog post about why we chose Python for the API and all that kind of stuff. 
but um we've got to go because we've got a sprint planning meeting which was uh eight minutes ago started i did email them to say we were doing a podcast but uh thank you chris that's been mm, really good thank you chris really nice to meet you and stay in touch you know we yeah if you've got any other questions and stuff um yeah, yeah. yeah uh, well i think I'll, 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 I'll come and find you on github oh yeah we'll stay in touch yeah. Yeah. brilliant so thanks to all my guests um so i'd just like to thank also uh tom Jemmett who does the editing another fairly easy one i think this time uh so if you've got any comments or questions or you'd like to if you would like to come on or know someone who does please email nhsr.rcommunity and nhs.net and we'll see you all next time